As we turn in our Bibles to the book of the Revelation, we're in chapter 20, and I'm reminded, I'm reminded of how Peter warned us that in the last days, in the midst of difficult times, there would be those who would mock our faith in Jesus. The one who came first to be our Savior, the one who comes together to, again to reign as King, they would mock that hope that we have in His coming. They would dare to say, where is the hope of His coming? But for somebody to mock your faith in Christ by referring to where is the hope of his coming, haven't things continued from the, from the beginning up until now, forgetting that God has intervened before in cataclysmic judgment and intervention on the earth, and he will do so again. But to be mocked for your hope in his coming would suggest that there is some clarity, enough clarity in you concerning the hope of Christ's coming that it leaks out of you to people around you and they need to challenge it. But I would suggest that actually there's a bit of fog or there's a bit of unclarity, ambiguity around our hope in Christ's coming. I would suggest that some of us, in fact, probably focus more on the rapture and the hope of our going rather than the hope of his coming. Would you think that would be true? We're not really, we've perhaps thought somewhere along the way, well, I'm not going to be there anyway, right? So I'm not going to worry about it. What is the hope of his coming. What happens when Jesus returns? It's not just a minor doctrine about future things, but much of your understanding of the Old Testament, much of your understanding about what Jesus says in the Gospels is going to be impacted by how you understand this idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. That which was described before in the prophets that Jesus then refers to, what does that mean? In the book of Revelation, as we come to chapter 20, and I'm going to give a little bit of introduction before we actually get into the text, so I, we will go there, don't worry. But it describes a 1,000-year period, a time when Satan is going to be bound, and then Christ, Messiah, reigns, and this seems to follow the chronology. It's tied tightly to chapter 19. Jesus comes. He defeats the beast and the false prophet and the armies that have been rallied and the kings of the earth that have rallied against his coming. And he defeats those armies and the beast and the false prophet. And then he reigns for this thousand-year period. And then after that thousand-year period, the next chapter, well, there's the great white throne of judgment and then the next chapter leads us into glory in God's eternity. Humanity that lost the garden and our, our um, blessed presence with God has been restored to a new garden. And there seems to be a chronology, a very tight chronology between chapters 19, 20, and 21. And yet, chapter 20 is probably, although it's not because it's unclear, it's not because there's all kinds of things in there that we don't understand we're just not sure they could mean what they say. And so there has been, apparently, more than any other chapter, chapter 20 is the most debated among evangelicals who believe God's word and look for Jesus' return. Chapter 20 is the most debated chapter in the book of Revelation. So if you came looking for a fight, we could have it this morning. 
All right, that'll be fun. People read the book of Revelation two basic ways, and it really comes to a head in this chapter. That, first of all, there's, a, there's what would be simply called the literal interpretation. More properly, it, it's called literal, historical, grammatical, contextual interpretation. Because all of those factors, you don't just take every word at its dictionary definition. We understand there's figurative language and so on. But generally, there's a literal approach, which reading this book in the same manner as you read the rest of the Bible, understanding that there's figures, that there's poetry, that there are powerful, there's powerful imagery used. There's figures of speech and allusions and symbols that have been used in the past that we can understand concerning future events. Then there is, however, there's an allegorical or a symbolic method of interpretation, which understands that the events described in the book are not going to be literal future events. Rather, these are symbolic of an ongoing spiritual reality throughout the church age. So there's not a timeline that you would actually try to follow through Revelation, but these are symbols that give us meaning about spiritual realities and even spiritual warfare through the church age. Those are the two main views, and I may have oversimplified them. So if I didn't describe where you thought you were at exactly, then please don't talk to me afterwards about that. I'm just generally oversimplifying two basic approaches. Okay. The difference comes to a head in Revelation 20. Specifically, it's this. Is there a 1,000-year literal earthly kingdom period where Jesus rules as king of the earth and its nations in a greater version of David's Old Testament-type kingdom? Is this rule of Jesus as king literally a time on earth, or is it Jesus' spiritual reign in his people today in the church? That's where it comes to a head because Revelation 20 sounds, sounds very specific and clear. And if we understand it literally, that suggests a future kingdom. And we then have to ask some other questions related to that. So as we talk about what is the promise of his coming, we're going to be looking, first of all, what is this kingdom? What is this kingdom? What is the purpose of it? And then if God does this, if God has this kingdom and God actually puts Satan in demon jail, then why would he ever parole him? Why would he ever let him out again? Okay? So those are questions we're going to deal with. But before we get there, talking about this difference in the book, some people believe that the kingdom has already come. That we are already living in the kingdom. That Christ is ruling in, in people spiritually. This is that spiritual interpretation. It leads to an amillennial view of Revelation chapter 20. Amillennial does not believe or does not claim that there is no kingdom of King Jesus, but that there is no 1,000 year literal on the earth kingdom. There is a kingdom where Jesus rules in his church and there will be eternity where Jesus rules everything. So they're not denying that there's a kingdom, but it's this thousand-year thing that they would say, no, that's symbolic, okay? That's amillennial. That has been the prevailing view of the, of the Roman Catholic Church through history. And because of that, it was also the accepted view, view by reformers like Calvin and Luther. And uh, frankly, Calvin and Luther, in their day, they were more concerned with Romans than Revelation, 
They were more concerned, far more concerned, and rightly so probably in their era, with the doctrine of salvation, justification by faith, than they were about eschatology. So they didn't much touch that. They just accepted what the church had handed down. They focused on issues around salvation by faith. Okay, so that's why then those, those Reformed churches in our day that love the Word of God and love the Lord Jesus as Savior still will hold to, in the tradition of Calvin and Luther, they'll still hold to an amillennial view, a symbolic view of this chapter because they're sticking with Calvin and Luther. That's where they were, so that's their foundation. So others would say, that the kingdom of God and his Christ refers to a future time, a time when Jesus will reign as king of kings on the earth. This is what's called the premillennial view. It's premillennial because Jesus comes before the millennium, and then there is this. So the thousand years is not today before Jesus comes, but the thousand years is after Jesus comes. Jesus comes pre, then the millennial, the thousand years. Revelation chapter 20 adds one piece of information to this idea of a future kingdom over which Jesus as the son of David reigns, and that is the length of it, that it's 1,000 years. That's not talked about in the Old Testament prophecies. That's new here. So it all centers, it comes to a head in Revelation chapter 20. Now I've talked about amillennial, a symbolic view. I've talked about premillennial, a Jesus comes and then he establishes his kingdom view. But many of you are perhaps have another view. Many of you are perhaps pan-millennial. It'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> yeah? That seems to be the easier way to go. It's the less confrontive way about it. You know, getting arguments with anybody that way. Oh, I don't really know, but it'll all pan out in the end. But the problem with that... As easy and non-confrontive as that seems, I still prefer the premillennial view. I think it matters. So let me explain from Revelation 20, as well as the rest of Scripture, why I think this is not only the correct view, the right way to, to interpret chapter 20, and thus to think about this idea, Old Testament and Gospels and New Testament, about the kingdom of God, because I think it's, it's important for our understanding of God's Word as a whole, and it's, it's important for our understanding of God's promise and our hope in the midst of a difficult time. And as the times get more difficult, this is going to become more important. Frankly, a spiritual view, a symbolic view, is easier to take in a time of prosperity. A time when the church, as through the era of the Roman Catholic Church, was more at the center of the culture than on the margins. It was much easier to hold to that kind of a view in that era. But in the first century, when the church is on the margins... They're not understanding being in the kingdom at present. Because if the kingdom was their experience, if the kingdom at present was the experience of the, of the churches in, the, in, in Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, if they're already living in the kingdom, well, the kingdom's not a very nice place. The kingdom is not something to look forward to. It matters for us, this understanding of the kingdom, because this is the hope of his coming. So we ought to at least be clear about it. So what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom as is described, first of all, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6? Let's read there. What is the kingdom? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. 
and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. When I saw thrones, then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. All right, well, let's look at some of those details. A a normal reading, in this this section, first of all, we have come across this 1,000 years. There's, there's, um, in fact, Six times in six verses, verses two to seven, six times in six verses, this this is repeated as 1,000 years specifically. Now, a normal reading of the paragraph would make sense if the 1,000 years were literal. We can read it that way, and it makes sense, okay? I'm not saying you agree with that yet or not, but it makes sense to read it that way. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to create symbols in order for the passage to make sense, whether you understand why there would be such a kingdom or not. It makes sense that way. And if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. That's the way you read all the rest of Scripture. You take it at face value, even if you don't yet fully understand it, and you seek to understand it. Open my eyes that I might behold the wonderful things from your word. The plain sense makes sense. Now, if the thousand years are not literal, we have no indication of what the thousand years then would mean. Previously, we've we've been careful to go back and when we we were trying to interpret symbols in the book of the Revelation, we're finding where do those symbols used in the Old Testament that we would bring that meaning into the book of Revelation. God is not merely using symbols to make things more confusing. He's actually intending to make it clearer by bringing in Old Testament imagery and the content of that image into the revelation. But there's no other place where we would go to to understand what the thousand years would mean. So we're left with the various possibilities of various commentaries, the possibilities which are as numerous as those who comment upon them. There's no anchor as to how we would understand it. That's a problem. Elsewhere in Revelation, when numbers are repeated, like three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, they have a literal rather than symbolic meaning. Even the 10 days of which the one church is going to suffer seems to refer to the historic practice by the Romans of imprisoning someone who's going to be fed to the gladiators or the beasts, imprisoning them for 10 days and then sending them. So every use of a particular specific period of time in the book of Revelation can be, and I think should be, understood literally. It's the plain sense, and it makes sense. And I'm a simple guy. I think seven days are seven days. I think a thousand years is a thousand years. Now, in the 7,000-year period, in verse 3, Satan is bound for a particular purpose so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. Now, Peter and Paul make it clear 
that currently Satan is deceiving the nations. That he is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. That he is, as Peter describes, walking about apparently freely like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, rather than being shut away and sealed in the abyss. If Satan is currently deceiving and blinding the nations, blinding those who are not believing, then he must not yet be bound and shut. We must not yet be in that thousand-year period. The, the symbolic interpretation of the amillennials would, would, would need to say here that well, this is describing that Satan is restrained, that he's controlled. He can only go as far as God would allow him during this church age. That was true, folks, during Job's time. Long before, Satan still is, Satan has always, from eternity past, been under the sovereign authority of God. Every created being is. That hasn't changed. But in this specific period, he's not just on a chained leash. He is cast into the abyss. He is shut in. He is sealed in. There's a tape over it that says crime scene. It says, do not disturb for a thousand years so that he doesn't deceive anybody. That's different than now. That is not what is, being, it, what is described concerning Satan's activities today. In verse 6, John anticipates a future when those saints now suffering will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Under the symbolic view, under the amillennial view, you would have to say that the church is already reigning in his kingdom as the king reigns through us. And yet... If that's the experience of the church today, that's also the experience of John's churches in the first century. And if, like I said, if that's their kingdom, it stinks, folks. It's not much of a kingdom at all. It's not much of a, of a hope of his coming at all. If that's the reign, well, then let's get on to eternity then. Frankly, if we talked about the reign of Christ, the kingdom of God as his rule in our hearts, would we not have to say, if we are honest with ourselves and others, would we not have to say that Jesus doesn't have much of a rule in us either? Does he? He certainly doesn't rule completely and wholly as with a rod of iron, not with my will, and if I dare to meddle a little bit, not with yours. Okay? But that's not what it's referring to. There is a time coming when Jesus will be king as a king truly reigns. Finally, and most importantly, we need to interpret Revelation according to the rest of Scripture. So when Revelation talks about Messiah's reign, how did the Old Testament talk about an earthly kingdom ruled by the Christ, the Messiah? This warrior king who would come from David's line and who would deliver Israel and restore Israel to a former glory among and over the other nations of the earth. An earthly kingdom ruled by the Christ, fulfills and completes what God has promised in the Old Testament. To put it bluntly, we're going to go through some of those, just a few of them. I had a long list, and I'm going to cut it down a little bit from the first service, but there's a bunch of references in your notes, and I had to weed that one down so I didn't overwhelm you in your notes, but you can go with those. But here's the point. To put it bluntly, if those promises are not fulfilled the way that God said they would be fulfilled and the way that the people who read them whether you're talking Israel, the nations, or the demons, the people who read them understood that they would be fulfilled, then God has not kept his word. 
That's an important point. You see, I think that if we understand God has moved to plan B, God has not kept his word as it was originally given, God's glory is at stake. Let me give you a couple examples out of those Old Testament prophecies. And again, I'm, I'm only scanning here, but you do have a, a, um, a more complete list. Isaiah chapter 2. It will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. And all the nations will flow to it. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn more war anymore. Such, that was such a compelling image that they stuck it on the side of the United Nations. So that's what we're going to do. Well, how's that working for you? They cannot do what the Christ himself will bring about and accomplish. Isaiah chapter 9, this is one you're familiar with. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and what? The government. Of all things, the government is going to be upon his shoulder. The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Man, what we fear most now, at least what I fear most now, is the increase of government having no end. But I will not fear it then. When his government increases over all the earth, it'll be a wonderful and glorious time. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. That's what we long for. Isaiah 11 describes a time when the wolf lies down with the lamb and the, and the children play with snakes. Won't that be beautiful, moms? It talks about a whole different uh, time as far as the threat to our mortality, though, doesn't it? And the brokenness of creation being healed, that's the point. Isaiah 19 talks about a time when Egypt and Assyria will be joined together. There's a highway between the two. They visit. They have vacation together. They have a great time. And Israel's right in the midst of them. And when they're coming from Assyria and Egypt to Israel, it's not to take over. It's to celebrate and worship together. Isaiah 35 talks about the wilderness and the dry land, the desert rejoicing and blossoming and being restored, and humanity being restored from our brokenness as well. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Jeremiah 23 and 33 both describe that in those days, the Lord says, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David. He will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah, a nation, will be saved. And Jerusalem, a place, will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. If you can break my covenant, the Lord says, with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time. Then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, that he will have a son to reign on his throne. Not just a throne, not a throne in heaven, but on David's throne. A kingdom like David. Finally, the one greater than David comes into a reign over the earth that is greater than David's was. Amos chapter 9. In that day, I will raise up that booth of David, the house of David that has fallen down. I will plant them in their land, and they will never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. Thus says the Lord your God. 
At the end of the book of Zechariah, he describes that glorious time when the king reigns in Jerusalem. And everyone who survives out of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. This is not floating around heaven in the future on a a cloud playing a harp or a saxophone or a violin. No, it's none of that. It's physical life. On this earth, but in an earth restored by the Lord at his coming, among people who are no longer led into rebellion and chaos and hatred and evil by Satan who is imprisoned. And it will be, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is what we've been told to pray for. It is what Jesus' ministry depicted. The miracles in his ministry. Think about it. John the Baptist comes to Jesus and he says, uh, John is wondering, are you really the Christ? Are you the one we should be looking for? Or should we be looking for another? And Jesus doesn't simply tell him, I'm the Messiah. What's wrong with you people? No. He gives John a better answer than that. He gives John something John can chew on and grab hold of. He says, look around. What do you see? Tell John what you see. Go and tell John that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to him. And you're seeing what Isaiah 11 described. You're seeing what the kingdom will look like. You're seeing signs of it. You're seeing the taste of it already. This is what Messiah would bring if his own Israel would receive him. Matthew chapter 20, you remember when the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and says, yeah, I have a question, I have a request, just one, one little thing, Jesus, would you do this for me? Would you allow, when you come in your kingdom which is going to be a literal kingdom where you're going to be reigning as king and you're going to give out positions. Somebody's going to be the the cabinet minister of this and that. Would you give to my son, James and John, one to sit on your right and the other left, to be your right and left hand guys in your kingdom? And Jesus doesn't say, woman, you have missed it completely. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, really in the hearts of my people. He says, no, I can't. I can't promise to you what is not mine to give. I cannot give to you what... What has been prepared by my Father? That's not for mine to give. He doesn't say it's not going to happen. He doesn't say nobody's going to get that. He says, that's not mine to give. That's a very similar answer to the answer he gives the disciples. Remember Acts chapter 1? Jesus is risen. He's about to ascend. And just before he gives them their commission and they see him ascended and the promise that just like they saw him go, they will see him come. Right back there to the Mount of Olives. There's Zechariah again. They asked him a question. They said, Lord, is, is, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Finally, is now the time when you're going to get rid of these Romans and Israel's going to a restored Davidic kingdom like was promised in the Old Testament? And Jesus doesn't, he doesn't slap anybody upside the head. He doesn't say, guys, have I been with you this long and you just missed it completely? He says, it's not for you to know when. He doesn't dispute at all that the request is right on but it's not for them to know when at times and seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority so not only does he tell them it's not for them to know when but he does tell them that God has fixed it it's sure it's certain you can count on it 
So, there's a problem with saying, well, God made those promises in the Old Testament, and that's how they would have been understood, yes, but God has, because of what Israel did, God has changed his plan, and he's going to fulfill those, what he couldn't fulfill through Israel because of their disobedience, he's fulfilling in Christ or and or in the church. But there's a problem with that. First of all, well, I call that problem the Moses argument. Do you, do you remember in Exodus chapter 32 when Moses is on the mountain receiving the covenant from God and Aaron's down with the people below the mountain making a golden calf? He later says, oh, honest, Moses, I just threw the gold into the fire and this calf popped out. So I told the people, here are your gods that delivered you from Egypt. And God, God understandably is ticked, Right? And what does he say to Moses? I think he's testing Moses here. He says to Moses, Moses, I am done with these people. Oh, these people. Do you work with people like that? Oh, these people. I'm done with these people. Just be clear, I don't work with people like that. I, I, I work with great people. Okay, But God says, Moses, I am going to wipe them all out, and I'm going to start all over. I'm going to build a nation from you. Moses, this is your lucky day. You just won the lottery. You are the new Abraham. And what does Moses say? Oh, well, gee, golly, who am I that you would do such for me? That's not what Moses says at all. Moses, Moses is horrified. Moses says, oh, God, no, you can't do that. No. If you destroy these people out here in the wilderness... Then the Egyptians are going to say, and the others who watched you with your mighty outstretched hand destroy the, Israel, the, the Egyptian army and bring them out, and yet they're going to conclude that it was because you were not able to bring them in to the land you had promised them that you killed them here in the desert instead. They're going to say, you couldn't get it done. Oh, God, don't let your glory be diminished in that way. Not only the nations, but I think the, the, the demons of hell would, would rejoice in the same thing. Look, God's wonderful plan has failed. We're not even going to get to a David or a Jesus because the line of Judah is about to be wiped out. And God's going to start again with Moses. You see what's at stake? God, Moses says, no, 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 God, you can't do that. And he's right on. Because, God, your glory is at stake in your ability to fulfill faithfully that which you have promised no matter how your people fail. Isn't it interesting that the promises of God's kingdom and the restoration in the future, most of those come through the prophets in the time when Israel is spiraling downward and headed to exile. And yet God promises not only that he's going to restore them, but how he's going to restore them and what the future is going to look like. So I think to move to plan B, to say that God is, is going to fulfill these promises, but spiritually in the church or through Jesus, instead of fulfilling them through Israel, is an attack on the glory of God. It's not meant to be. It's not meant to be at all. But that's one of the ramifications of it that is easily overlooked. God will do what he has promised to do. Well then, Fair enough, why has he promised this? What is the purpose of a literal earthly kingdom if Jesus comes and he destroys the beast and the false prophet and he, he throws them in the lake of fire? Why couldn't he do that with, with the devil at the same time too? And why not then just go right into eternity? 
Not even, what's this temporary kingdom for? And I would suggest it has three purposes. First of all, it's doxological. That's a big word by which it means it's for the glory of God. It is for the glory of God that God will do, just as he said. Not only that, but the nations of the earth will, in the same setting as we live in today, they will see the glory of God in Christ, his Messiah, the right King of David, the better than David who has come, and who will rule with righteousness and justice and mercy and grace in ways the world has never seen before. And the world and heaven will see it, and God will be glorified in the rule of Jesus. Another purpose of the kingdom is it's invitational. This will be a time when, for instance, there are renewed sacrifices. People ask me, well, what's the purpose of the sacrifices? Jesus has already died. The sacrifices pointed to Jesus, but now Jesus has died. We don't need Old Testament sacrifices. You never needed Old Testament sacrifices to cover sin until Jesus came. It was the faith in what God said that, that covered those, those sins until Jesus came. But no bull or goat in the Old Testament covered sin. Jesus' death covers sin. So the, the sacrifices in the kingdom, which are described especially by Ezekiel, and even the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, as Zechariah describes, all of that is to point back as object lessons to remind, even as we would celebrate a Passover still today, which we do in the Lord's table. We look back in the same way that those sacrifices ahead of time looked forward and anticipated. This will be a thousand years where over the course of the equivalent of 12 lifetimes, people will have an opportunity to not only see and know the Lord Jesus in his glory, but to understand through his object lessons the nature and need of redemption that was provided in his death for them. The kingdom is invitational. It's the last best chance for any humans that made it through the tribulation period for them to know the truth and be saved. There will be some who are. There will be others who, who are not. Another purpose of the millennium. Well, first, before I, before I go further, let me pause there on the invitational side. By application, that purpose of the millennium where God's invitation is held out once more by both the likeness of Christ and the story of Christ's redemption, that is our purpose today. This is what my uh, amillennial friends have helped me with. By taking a, a app, what I would call an applicational view of the passage, they reminded me that what is true during the, the, the kingdom period, those thousand years, is also meant to be true for the church today. That we are to, are to show God's glory. We're to show a likeness of Christ that is invitational. We are to demonstrate, to live out, to be object lessons of his mercy and his forgiveness so that they can know the Lord who loved them and gave himself for them. Our lives are to be invitational. So in that sense, there's something of the kingdom that applies to today. And thank you to my amillennial friends for bringing that to the surface so that we don't overlook it. They have that part of it right. Another purpose of the millennium is the vindication and exaltation of those who lost, the cause, lost everything for the cause of Christ. Through the millennium, these saints who have suffered through the ages of the church, they will reign with Christ. Those who Satan and the beast rejected and even killed, God has raised and exalted to rule. Satan is imprisoned, the beast is cast into the lake of fire, but the saints will share in Jesus' grand reversal. 
That's the hope that is set before us. That is the hope of his coming. We may suffer in this present age, but he will lift us up in due time. That's what Peter says. Don't define things by the current temporary, but define reality by the enduring outcomes that God will accomplish. Judge the present not by the present. Judge the present by God's future. In this day, do not live for this day. Live for his future. Lean into eternity. If that's true, if we're going to rule and reign with Christ, then we need to grow for God's future. In fact, our purpose in this life is to be growing in faith, to be growing spiritually, that we increase our capacity for knowing God and serving his purposes in his kingdom and in his eternity. This is God's workshop for eternity. The present where we have the opportunity to live and walk and serve by faith, this is the only opportunity we get for that. In the kingdom, we will not live by faith, but by sight. But now we live and learn to trust him by faith for what we don't yet see. This is our opportunity to be building spiritual muscle for eternity. That's why what you do today matters. It's not a matter of of knowing and following Jesus by helping others to know and follow Jesus, because that's simply what we're supposed to do to obey, and obeying is important. And if you do it right, you're going to get more jewels in your crown, kind of like a real fancy version of Awana you know, things on your uniform. Honestly, sometimes we see it that way, don't we? And yet, really, in our own heart, it's not terribly compelling. But what if, in this life, God is growing us in our capacity to know and follow him in ways that will resonate into eternity, and the one who is faithful in little will be given responsibility over much? Maybe it's ten cities, maybe it's five, maybe it's one, and we'll each grow to the capacity that we're then given, and no one will be jealous of another's responsibility, but what you do now and the choices you make now will resonate into eternity. What you do now matters then. Not for what God can't accomplish without you, but what God will grow you to how you will serve him and worship him in the future. This is God's workshop for eternity. Well, there's one prevailing question. All of that sounds good, and I'm ready for the kingdom then. But why would God ruin it at the end? Why would God let Satan back out again? I mean, you got him in demon prison. Why would you parole him, right? I mean, you probably can read about crimes, but no, no, that guy shouldn't get out. And if there's anybody that shouldn't get out, it's him. And yet after a thousand years, he must be let loose for a little while. What's going on with that? Let's read about it. Verse 7. We have time. Let's read about it. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. There's a bunch of them by this time. That tells you there's been a lot of multiplying in the kingdom as well. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. And then, after Satan's released and after he's dealt with, then there's a great white throne judgment. And him who was seated on it, and from this presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. 
And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There will be no more need for death or Hades because in God's eternity there will be no more death. But why does God let Satan loose? Basically, to lead another rebellion. Why would God allow that? This is to show and to vindicate before all of heaven and earth Satan's persistence in rebellion. He's had a thousand years to think it over. And what's on his agenda when he finally gets out? Man, I'm not going to do that again. Boy, I have learned from my, from my time. I'm a new Lucifer. No, he's not. He's the same old. After a thousand years, he's just as he was, and he does just what he does. And this vindicates before all of humanity and heaven God's righteous judgment of Satan, who as a, a committed leader of rebellion has no place in God's eternal purposes. It also vindicates God's judgment of humanity by showing that when given the opportunity to follow Satan again, a bunch of them do. All of those who have not been born again during this kingdom period, those of natural humanity that started and now continue in the, in the midst of the kingdom, when given the chance to finally follow Satan again, oh, there's a guy we can go after, and they do. And they don't just follow him and go live off in another corner of the world that's not being used. No, they set out to attack the holy city where the saints are gathered and where the king reigns. And so God's judgment of those who have refused, even in this thousand years, this equivalent of 12 lifetimes of opportunity to believe on the true and righteous and just and merciful and long, patient king. But they've chosen Satan again instead. God's vindicated in his judgment, his eternal judgment of them as well. You see, there will be a day when God's mercy has ended. And those who have stubbornly returned to rebellion are judged and removed. Satan will precede them and they will follow him into eternal judgment. So then, Lord, prepare us for your kingdom. Lord, save others for your kingdom. Lord, use us in your saving of others for your kingdom. Your, Lord, use me today. Show in my life in some ways your glory, the likeness of Jesus that would be attractive to people around me. That they'd want to know something about the hope that it was in me and that I would know something about my hope to describe it to them. Lord, Provide for our daily needs now as you will then. Lord, protect us from the tempter, from the evil one now as you will do in your kingdom. We do pray, don't we? Let our Father who art in heaven, hallowed. Let be glorified your name. How is God's name going to be glorified? By your kingdom coming. Your will being done on earth where everybody can see it and know what you are like. That will show his glory. And yeah, my amillennial friends are right. That ought to be seen then in the lives of the church today. But there's even better to come. I wanted to close now with a, a time for us as a church in prayer.
And we actually chose to do this at the end of the service because we wanted to have that hope of his coming even inform how we think and approach our prayer. So would you bow your heads with me now as we consider God's faithfulness and our neediness. Father, we do praise you then for your faithfulness. Lord, that prayer that you gave us is the longing of our heart because we know that you are a faithful God who will do what you have promised. You are a merciful God who continues to wait. Lord, we would get impatient and we would want the better future now, but you are not willing that any would perish. And you continue to give time and opportunity. And Lord, would you then give us time and opportunity with others? Father, we... Pray that even as you are long-suffering to invite, we thank you for that. We thank you that, that you waited for each one of us who now believe. And Father, would you give us patience then, your patience with the people around us. Father, we are not yet in your kingdom, and we know the needs, the hurts, the chaos of broken people in a broken world. And we pray, Len, for... Lord, the circumstances all around us. We pray for our leaders in the elections. We know that, that even in the midst of chaotic times, there were times when rulers were raised up in your history among your people that made, even if it was for a short while, a change that gave opportunity. And Lord, we would ask you to do that because we want to live in the time of the moving of your spirit where your grace is prevailing in the lives of others. But Lord, we trust you with the future even in our current society. Father, we pray for the economics and the uncertainties that are ahead of us and the anxieties that causes and the trouble already that has led to in the lives of, of some among us as well as around us. Father, we pray for your provision. And Lord, we pray also that you would guard our hearts against anxieties in terms of the future and finances and how we will make it. Lord, we will make it because you uphold us. Father, we pray for your church to be light in the midst of the darkness. We pray that while we wait for your day, that we would be lamps in the current night. Father, we pray for our small groups and their interactions together and their care for one another, their connect, connection among one another, how we encourage one another in these groups. Father, we pray that you would help us to be sensitive and awake, to bear one another's burdens, to exhort and challenge encourage. Father, we pray for the D groups, and the discipline, the, the spiritual growth that happens there, the, the choices made that would be spiritual growth that would matter in your future. Father, we pray for the things that we learn in BP Academy, the children in Sunday school, in Awana, things that would grow us in your truth because the world around us, the world around us needs your truth. Father, we pray for those who grieve and mourn and, and have suffered loss. We pray for this grief-share ministry, both to people within our church and to others around us, who in the midst of their loss and grief, they need hope. And Father, would you use this ministry to bring hope? Father, we, we pray for several in our body with illness and cancer. Lord, there's more than I would want to name, but Father, you know these circumstances. And, and across our body, we're praying for individual ones right now. Lord, some of these are very serious, and we don't know what the future brings. We ask, Father, for you to intervene. We've seen that happen. We've seen you work miraculously and give time 
Father, we ask you to do it again. And Lord, yet we trust you with the frailty of our flesh. We trust ourselves in your hands. Father, there are hurts that have been experienced that need healing. There's trusts that have been broken that needs to be restored. And Father, we ask for your mercy in these cases. We ask for you to do what we ourselves could not do. Lord, that that redemption that you will bring into lives on the earth, that you would bring into lives right here in our body at present. Father, there are fears that we harbor that need faith to trust you. Lord, grow in us, encourage in us a hope in your future that overcomes the present uncertainties. Father, take the truth about your coming kingdom and help us live for your gospel and your glory already in this present broken world. Lord, let your kingdom come. We long to see you glorified when your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So, Lord, that is our prayer. Indeed, let your kingdom come. And, Father, while we wait for that day, work your will in us in this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all who believe said, Amen.